between the years of 1940 and 1944, Rudolf Mattei was nominated for five consecutive Academy Awards for Best Cinematography for some legendary directors such as Sam Wood and Alfred Hitchcock. In 1947, and after being a cinematographer for over 70 films since 1919, Mattei turned his focus to directing. For the next 16 years, Mattei would direct another 28 films, including the 1951 sci-fi classic When Worlds Collide, which would go on to be the inspiration behind cultural classics such as the opening theme of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and even catapulted heavy metal band Power Man 5000 to success thanks to a single inspired by the film. But sci-fi wasn't the only genre where Mattei would inspire future works of art. In fact, it was in 1962, which was just two years before Mattei's unfortunate death, that he released a film which would go on to inspire artists around the world. With a budget of $8.5 million, or about $67 million in today's dollars, Mattei's film, called The 300 Spartans, retold a fascinating story which many at the time saw as a commentary on the Cold War. The 300 Spartans was a smash hit, raking in over $76 million. That's over $600 million in today's dollars. The masses loved the story. One of the fans of Matei's work was a young boy who had gone to see the 300 Spartans in the theater with his family. The story was a huge influence to this five-year-old, and later he would recall that it was the first time he'd encountered a story where someone did the right thing and still paid with their life. That boy? Frank Miller. Years later, Frank Miller would spend decades building a career as a comic book artist for some of the biggest names in the industry, DC Comics and Marvel Comics. In the 1970s and 1980s, he built a poorly selling Marvel superhero by the name of Daredevil into a popular title. After Daredevil, Miller went on to work at DC again, this time building a darker side of Batman in his Batman The Dark Knight Returns comic books. After leaving DC, Miller went to work on a new series called Sin City for Dark Horse Comics. In 1998, Miller wrote and illustrated a comic book miniseries simply titled 300, where he retold the story that had so captivated him as a child. Eight years later, Miller's 300 comic was turned into a Hollywood blockbuster. The budget for 300 was surprisingly right around the same as Mattei's 1962 interpretation. Of course, thanks to inflation, that number had changed. While Mattei's The 300 Spartans was made with about $67 million in today's dollars, the 2006 movie 300 was made for about $65 million. At the helm of 300 was Zack Snyder, who has since gone on to direct a number of superhero movies, from Man of Steel and Batman vs. Superman to the as-yet-to-be-released Justice League movies. While Snyder's version of 300 was technically based on Miller's comic, the story is mired in truth. It's the heroic story of a small band of men who faced a horde, the story that a five-year-old Frank Miller was so fascinated by that it stuck with him for over 40 years. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is Based on a True Story.
Our story begins just off the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the ancient region of Ionia in modern-day Turkey. Like most of the other Greek city-states at the time, Ionia was subjected to the conquest of Cyrus the Great in 547 BC. Although they were technically subject to Persian rule after Cyrus conquered them, the Ionians had quite a bit of autonomy under what amounted to a puppet government. Despite this, about 50 years later, the Ionians revolted against their Persian overlords. With support from the Athenians and the Eritreans, the Greeks managed to liberate Ionia, as well as the regions of Thrace and Macedon from the Persian Empire. Because of the success of this revolt, other Greek settlements along the western coast of the Persian Empire were also sparked to fight. They wanted to find freedom from the Persians, and after years of bloodshed, the Greeks finally freed themselves and defeated the Persians at the Battle of Mycale in 479 BC. Persian king Darius I was furious as he saw both his pride and his kingdom take a major hit. It took a few years to recuperate from their losses and formulate a plan, but in 492 BC, the Persian army began their retaliation. Darius wanted to wipe the Greeks off of the map, so he assembled a specialty task force and ordered them to make their way to the largest city-states at the time, Eritrea and Athens. But before they did that, they'd have to make it to those city-states, and there were a lot of Greeks between the Persians and Athens. By land, it was nearly 1,000 miles around the Aegean Sea. The closest region, and by extension the first on the list to recapture, was Thrace. In fact, it took two years for the Persians to recapture the regions of Thrace and nearby Macedon. But the Persians were just getting started. Organizing a second offensive in 490 BC, the Persian army either forced full annexation of settlements or just completely burned them down to the ground. Eritrea was one of the first of the two big city-states to fall to Persia, but Darius wanted to make a statement with the Eritreans. He razed the city to the ground and enslaved all of the civilians. Making a final push towards Athens, which is just about 15 miles south of where Eritrea was, the Persians were met by the Athenian army just outside of the city near Marathon. Despite the Persians having about 20,000 men, the Greeks managed to push them back with only 11,000 men. The Greeks were fighting for their homeland, and this gave them a boost that ultimately helped them force the Persian armies to retreat. In fact, it was after this battle at Marathon that a Greek soldier by the name of Pheidippides ran from Marathon the 26.2 miles back to Athens to let the city know of the Persians' defeat. And that's where we get the term marathon for the long-distance endurance run today. Although his army had managed to almost wipe out the Greeks, Darius wasn't happy. He had only almost managed to wipe them out, and he wouldn't be happy unless they were completely gone. 
Even before his armies returned from the battlefield back in Persia, Darius had heard of the impending defeat and had already begun rebuilding his army for another attempt. This time, Darius wouldn't accept defeat and he made two huge changes to help ensure his victory. First, Darius wasn't going to turn around and attack right away. This time, he wanted to make sure that he had enough men and ships to win the war. Secondly, instead of sending his generals to do the work for him, Darius himself would lead the imperial armies. Darius wanted to see Greece burn with his own eyes. Unfortunately for Darius, word had begun to spread that the Persians could be defeated. So before Darius could finish making his preparations to retaliate against the Greeks, the Egyptians reached their tipping point. They were fed up paying high Persian taxes and losing their men to build Persian palaces. So in 486, the Egyptians followed down the path of the Greeks and organized their own revolt. Already in failing health, having to fight yet another revolt didn't help. Darius died soon after at the age of 64. And so, at the age of 32, Darius I's son, Xerxes, took control of the Persian Empire. In the movie 300, Xerxes is portrayed by Rodrigo Santoro, and he's referred to as a god-king. And he wanted to show the might of Persia. Almost immediately after taking the throne, Xerxes squelched the Egyptian revolt. But more than that, Xerxes came to power itching to make an example of someone and stop all of these revolts that were happening. Who better to make an example of than the people his father had tried to make an example of but had failed? So Xerxes turned his eye to Greece. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank & Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. In the movie, the Persian army is shown to be a massive force without equal at the time. And that actually is quite true. If you remember, Darius I had sent a force of about 20,000 men, and he had been nearly successful in conquering all of Greece. When Xerxes took up his father's campaign, he amassed an army of over 40 times that size. That's about 882,000 men and almost 5,000 ships. And if that wasn't enough, about 50,000 of those 882,000 men were Greeks from the Balkans who joined up with Xerxes both for the money, but also because they didn't want to leave the Persian Empire. Failure was not an option for Xerxes, and what's more, he would defeat Greece with Greeks. Or so it would seem. Although they were a collection of city-states and settlements, the Greeks had a secret weapon up their sleeves, the Spartans. In 300, the movie kicks off by explaining how Spartans breed warriors. While it was overly dramatic in the movie's telling, the basic premise is actually true. Throughout the ancient world, infant homicide, which is referred to as infanticide, was quite common. So while this wasn't unique to Sparta, the Spartans had turned this common task of the time into something to make their state stronger. They would weed out the infants that they didn't think could be turned into future soldiers. In the movie 300, you see a man holding a baby above a chasm of human skulls, implying that children who weren't worthy were cast into the chasm. This came from the ancient historian Plutarch, who made the claim that Spartan babies were tossed into the chasm at the foot of Mount Tegetus. When the state determined that they wouldn't be able to live up to their future duty of being a soldier. Remember, this is happening to children, usually infants under a year old. Imagine the government deciding if the infant will be able to be a soldier when they grow older at less than a year. And if they're deemed incapable, uh, most historians actually dismiss Plutarch's claim of dumping them into a chasm. Instead, it's believed that the babies were simply abandoned on a nearby hillside. The child would then either be rescued and adopted by strangers or more likely, the child would die from exposure. The result of these despicable acts by the Spartan state meant that those children who did live were those deemed worthy of being a soldier. After centuries of this treatment, the Spartans had mastered the creation of warriors who would happily lay down their lives for Sparta. Still, the Spartans weren't necessarily in the fight for their entire country of Greece, after all, the country didn't even exist yet. It was just a collection of city-states, and even they didn't get along all the time. In fact, although it's outside this particular story, shortly after this whole battle went down between the Persians and the Spartans, the Spartans would turn on Athens and conquer them to basically rule the southern tip of Greece. This sort of struggle for power was common among the city-states in the region. But when a foreign enemy entered the fray, these city-states would band together to fight them off. 
When Xerxes started his march in 480 BC, Sparta would have been one of the city-states to be raised in his mission to annihilate all of the Greeks. Thanks to their location on the southernmost part of the peninsula, Sparta had a bit of time to prepare before Xerxes arrived. In the movie, King Leonidas, who's played by Gerard Butler, consulted mystic priests known as ephors, who told Leonidas he mustn't go to war, claiming it would violate the ritual of the Carnea. There is some truth to this, although, as you might expect, it does differ from the movie. The Carnea was a ritual that took place once a year from the 7th to the 15th of the month of Carneus, or what we call August today. It was to celebrate the life of a man whom the month was named after, Carnus, who was a favorite of the Greek god of music, Apollo. Now, because Carnus was slain in battle, Apollo was believed to punish the Spartan army with diseases during the month of Carnea, or during the ritual of Carnea from the 7th to the 15th. And since no warrior wants to get sick in the middle of battle, that's why the Spartans refused to go to war during Carnea. But with the Persian horde on their way, King Leonidas, whose name means lion, knew Xerxes and his army had to be stopped right away, despite both the ritual of Carnea and also the all-Greek Olympic ceremony as those two happened to overlap that year. Something had to give. In the movie 300, the Persians send a messenger to Sparta ahead of Xerxes' army requesting earth and water. This is actually true, although Sparta wasn't unique in this request. One of the ways Xerxes intimidated his foes was to only offer them life if they would serve him. In which case, of course, their armies would fold into and fight alongside the Persians, growing their strength. A lot of the Greek city-states fell to Xerxes in this way without blood being shed. These would give the Persian messenger earth and water from their soil as a token of their submission. As two of the largest and most defiant city-states, both Athens and Sparta refused to submit. In the movie 300, King Leonidas yells, This is Sparta! as he kicks the messenger down into a well. In truth, history agrees that the taunt was more along the lines of, Dig it out for yourselves! But the Spartans did throw the messengers into a well. The Athenians, on the other hand, threw the messengers who came to them into a pit. This act of defiance by Athens and Sparta in the face of the Persians caused other Greek city-states to build some confidence and a small alliance between the Greeks was formed. In this way, word was sent among the Greek regions and an army was formed to meet the Persians. Because of Carnea, the Spartan council refused to send out the full army. But the Spartans had refused to send soldiers to battle during Carnea when Darius had made his attack many years before. While that had ended in Greek victory at Marathon thanks to the Athenians, this time more Greek cities were submitting to Xerxes and hope was dim. King Leonidas knew even more Greeks would submit to Xerxes if Sparta didn't offer their help, and by extension Sparta would eventually fall. But he couldn't take the army 
because of the ritual of Carnea. So he did what he could. In the movie, when Leonidas leaves Sparta, he says that he's leaving with his personal bodyguard just going for a stroll. And he says it with a bit of a smirk as if it's a joke. Part of this is actually true. You see, technically, Leonidas's bodyguard wasn't a part of the army. So they weren't limited to the same restrictions and beliefs as the army during Carnea. So the bodyguard, along with Leonidas, were free to travel and meet the Persians. It was Leonidas's bodyguard that he left Sparta with. And while it seems like a lot for a bodyguard, history now tells us that only 300 men was not enough to face the massive Persian army. While the movie does make mention of there being more Greeks than the 300 Spartans, in the line where Leonidas meets with the Phocians and asks the Greek soldiers what their professions are, the Hollywood version doesn't really tell how many Greeks were with them. In truth, including the 300 Spartans, there were about 7,000 Greeks who went to battle against Persia at Thermopylae. The ancient historian Herodotus gives insight into the primary reason Leonidas led his personal bodyguard against the Persians with the other Greek forces. And I quote, The force with Leonidas was sent forward by the Spartans in advance of their main body, that the sight of them might encourage the allies to fight and hinder them from going over to the Medes as was likely they might have done had they seen that Sparta was backward. They intended presently when they had celebrated the Carnean festival, which was what now kept them at home to leave a garrison in Sparta and hasten in full force to join the army. The rest of the allies intended to act similarly, for it happened that the Olympic festival fell exactly at this same period. None of them looked to see the contest at Thermopylae decided so speedily, wherefore they were content to send forward a mere advanced guard. Such accordingly were the intentions of the allies. End quote. So it would seem that Leonidas was leading some Greeks to hold off the Persians until the rest of the army could join them. Still, going against insurmountable odds, Leonidas knew that he probably wasn't going to survive the battle. Another historian, Plutarch, makes note of what Leonidas said to his wife, Queen Gorgo, who's played by Lena Headey in the movie, on the day before he left. She asked what she should do when he'd left. His reply was to, quote, marry a good man and have good children, end quote. It was clear Leonidas didn't expect to return, but he wouldn't go out without a fight. Although the Persians had plenty of ships, they had more men than they could fit in them, so a bulk of the Persian force would have had make its way through Greece on land. Sparta would be one of the last stands of Greece since it's geographically positioned on the same peninsula with Olympia and near modern-day Tripoli. So Leonidas and the Greeks with him knew that they'd have their best shot to defend the entire peninsula where Athens and then Sparta lay. The best place to do this, Leonidas knew, was at the Pass of Thermopylae. One of the reasons it's such a great defensive position is because on the northern side, 
there's the Gulf of Malice, which is off the Aegean Sea. And then on the southern side, there's impenetrable cliffs. In the movie, they refer to the pass as the Hot Gates, which is what the Greeks called it at the time. The name comes from the hot springs that were in the area, along with a series of three holes in the cliffs that allowed passages. This, these were the gates. Some of those passages were blocked off by walls built by Phocians a century earlier. What was left for Leonidas and the Greeks to defend was a single passage so narrow that it said only a single chariot could pass at a time. Of course, the region has changed geographically since 480 BC. Today, it's near the Gulf of Malice, which has filled in the springs that used to be there, but it's still a natural defensive position that armies have continued to use over the centuries. One of the most recent examples happening during World War II as the Allies used it to help fight back the Nazi advance. As the Persians neared Thermopylae, Leonidas and the Greeks met to determine their next action. With battle seeming imminent, many of the Greeks were getting antsy and actually wanted to retreat. They figured that the Persians would have to defeat the mighty Athenians before they could conquer Greece, and after all, the Athenians had defeated the Persians before at the Battle of Marathon, but two of the city-states were located near Thermopylae. They knew if they didn't hold Thermopylae, their cities would be the next to be raised by the Persians. So the Phocians and the Locrians pleaded their case of defending Thermopylae as they sent for more help. King Leonidas liked this plan. While the Greeks were meeting, a lone Persian scout made his way to the Greek camp. The Greeks saw him but let him live with the idea that he would report their location and their strength back to the Persians in an attempt to fear them. And he did, but he also reported that the Spartans and their tiny Greek force were combing their hair and doing calisthenics. Xerxes found this laughable and asked the Greeks who were in his army what this meant. That's when he learned of the Spartan tradition of adorning their hair before battle. Xerxes' tone changed. The bravest men of Greece planned to defend the pass and were preparing for battle. The Spartans would make a fine addition to his massive army, so Xerxes wanted to offer the Greeks a chance to join his side. In the movie, Xerxes put his hands on Leonidas as he offers him rule over all of Greece. While he didn't do it personally, this offer did happen. Xerxes sent a messenger to the Greek forces asking Leonidas to join him. In return, Leonidas would be king over all of Greece. While Gerard Butler's version of Leonidas mocked Xerxes as he blamed sore legs for not being able to kneel, the real response of Leonidas was even more telling into the mind of this great soldier. And I quote, If you knew what is good in life, you would abstain from wishing for foreign things. For me, it is better to die for Greece than to be monarch over my compatriots. End quote. Hearing his reply, Xerxes decided to apply a little more pressure. Just like in the movie, he sent a messenger escorted by a battery of soldiers with the message for Leonidas to lay down his arms. Now, in the movie, it's this messenger that's about to whip the Spartans when Stelios, who's played by Michael Fassbender in 300, lunges forward and cuts off the messenger's arm. 
That's when the messenger says the Spartans don't have a chance and the Persian arrows will blot out the sun. Although Stelios is a fictional character, this exchange is based on a truth. As historian Herodotus wrote, after Leonidas' refusal of Xerxes' first offer, the Greek morale was high. It was Dionikis, a Spartan soldier, who was talking with another Spartan soldier when he heard tales that Persian arrows would be so numerous as to blot out the sun. His reply to the Spartan was, quote, so much the better, we shall fight in the shade, end quote. So in truth, it was a chat between two Spartans instead of a taunt from a Spartan to a Persian. But the movie 300 did get the next part much closer to the truth. When the second messenger came to tell Leonidas to lay down his arms, this is when Leonidas gave his now famous reply, quote, come take them, end quote. This statement or one similar are still used by soldiers to this day. Xerxes waited for four days to see if the Greeks would leave the pass. When they didn't, he ordered a portion of his force, the Medes and the Sicians, to take them prisoner. Now, he didn't want them killed, but he wanted them to bow before him in person. According to historians, the Medes were picked to go first, most likely because they had been one of the last people to be conquered by the Persians. So it's likely that Xerxes wanted them to bear the brunt of the fighting, essentially the lowest on the totem pole. And so the Medes headed to the pass. While historians don't know all of the details and specifics exactly of how the battle went down, we have a pretty good idea. It'd be most likely that the Greeks formed a phalanx. Like you see in the movie 300, a phalanx is essentially made up of a group of soldiers who work side by side to work as a unit instead of working as individual soldiers. In this case, with a limited width of the pass at Thermopylae, the Greek phalanx was made up of overlapping shields and layered spear points that spanned the entire width of the pass. They were a human wall of weapons and armor. While the Medes approached, Xerxes set himself up a little ways off so he could watch the fight. The Medes had arrows and short spears that couldn't break the phalanx. Although according to Herodotus, the Greeks didn't use the phalanx throughout the entire battle. Instead, they preyed on the inexperienced Medes by pretending to retreat in disorder. Then when the Medes would push forwards, the Greeks would shock them by turning around suddenly and attacking them with force. Using this technique, the Greeks killed almost 10,000 Persians and infuriated Xerxes even more. He withdrew the remaining Medes and sent in another force of more experienced soldiers. This force was referred to as the Immortals, and you see them in the movie 300. Although in truth, the name Immortals was most likely given to them by the ancient historian Herodotus. Historians today think that he confused the Persian name Anusaya, which means companions, with Anausa, Ana meaning non, and Ausa meaning death, so non-death or immortals. So while it's unlikely that Leonidas referred to them as immortals at the time, these were still 10,000 of the most elite fighting force in Xerxes' command. Because of the limited space in the pass, 
the Persian elite forces weren't able to have any more success than the Medes did. Before losing them all and with the sun going down, Xerxes ordered them to withdraw. Another thing the movie 300 got right was most likely how many of the Persian forces must have felt when they were going up against the Spartans. As the day wore on and the body count rose, the new Persian forces advancing through the narrow pass would have had to pass by or even over the growing number of dead bodies in order to meet the Spartans. And even if this made them afraid, they couldn't retreat because on the other side were their officers preventing them from withdrawing. Leonidas and the Greeks had created a killing machine in the pass, and after thousands had perished, Xerxes finally came to realize a head-on assault would be futile. This is where the first day of the battle ended, and both sides retreated to their camps to prepare for the next day. On the second day, Xerxes continued his head-on assault. Although he didn't really expect it to work because of the previous day's losses, he didn't really have much choice. There was no way around the pass, and a head-on approach was the only thing that he could do. He had to hope that eventually the Greeks would break. In the movie, fates of the Greeks change when they're betrayed by a deformed man by the name of Ephialtes. This is true, although the details of it are quite different than in the movie. While the movie makes Ephialtes out to be a deformed man, an outcast Spartan who didn't make the cut as a child, in truth, he wasn't deformed at all. And he wasn't even from Sparta. He was from Molis, a Greek tribe which was near Thermopylae. While there's no historical evidence to suggest Ephialtes ever met Leonidas as he did in 300, in truth, the Greeks with Leonidas likely already knew about this trail. In fact, most of the locals in the area knew of the trail. The Malians, which Ephialtes is a part of, had used this trail to raid their neighbors, the Phocians, who were now teaming together to help the Greeks against the Persians. The small trail led over the mountains south of Thermopylae and then joined back up with the main road behind where the Greeks were holding off the Persians. Like in the movie, Leonidas did station some Phocian soldiers to help guard the path. There were about 1,000 men that he left at the path to guard it. This just shows how the Greeks weren't always friendly with each other, but they were teaming up to fight off a foreign enemy. No doubt word spread to Ephialtes and many others around of the advancing Persian force and the Greeks who were making their stand at the hot gates. Seeking Persian riches, Ephialtes decided that he could use his knowledge of the path to make himself a wealthy man. Xerxes jumped at the chance to try something other than a head-on assault. He took up Ephialtes on his offer to guide them through the path that would flank the Greek position. As the first light broke on the third day, the Phocians guarding the path were sleeping when they heard the rustling of leaves. The elite Persian forces, the immortals, were advancing, and the Phocians weren't even awake. They jumped up and hastily armed themselves, but it was too late. The Persians pushed the Phocians back to the crest of the mountain where they made their own last stand. After clearing the path, the Persians made their way down it to surround the Greeks at Thermopylae. 
In the movie, before their final stand, some of the Greeks flee the battle as they sense the end. In truth, Leonidas was kept apprised of the Persians' attempt to flank his position by scouts. After he found out that the Phocians had fell at the path, he knew he would soon be trapped between two columns of enemies. He called for the Greek leaders to come to a council to determine their next action. Retreat was the only action that would offer a chance at survival, but with the Persians so close, even retreat didn't guarantee survival. While the movie made it seem like the Spartans were abandoned by the other Greek soldiers, that's not entirely true. Leonidas did decide that he and his Spartans would stay and fight to the death, but they did so in an attempt to hold off the Persians for as long as they could while the rest of the Greek forces retreated to safety. And they weren't alone. About 700 thespian soldiers chose to stay with the Spartans, facing what would be certain death. In fact, some historians have argued that the choice the thespians made outweighs the sacrifice of the Spartans. Since Spartans are raised as soldiers and trained to give their lives in combat as a matter of Spartan law, dying in battle was to be expected for them. The same isn't true for the thespians who chose to stay and fight alongside their Greek brethren, the Spartans, to the end. The thespian general, for example, was actually an architect by the name of Demophilus. None of the thespians were professional soldiers. They were citizens that had only taken up arms to keep the Persians out of their homelands. While the movie 300 doesn't make mention of this, historians have said that the Spartans honored the sacrifice of the thespians by exchanging cloaks with them and promising to be their allies in this life and for eternity in the next. At dawn on the fourth day, all hell broke loose as the Persians attacked. It began from the same direction that the Persians had been attacking head-on the whole time. Knowing that they would soon be surrounded, the Greeks this time pushed their way forward to a wider part of the pass. This allowed more Persians in, but also allowed the Greeks the opportunity to kill more Persians. They knew the end was near and they wanted to slaughter as many Persians as they could. Behind the Greeks, the immortals made their way off of the mountain from the trail along with Ephialtes. Expecting to surprise the Spartans, Leonidas had one more trick up his sleeve when he shocked them by not only being ready, but forming an offensive and attacking them. It was in this battle that Leonidas himself died, and although he didn't actually hurl a spear at Xerxes himself, as he did in the movie, Herodotus wrote that two of Xerxes' brothers were killed in the battle as well. So in a way, he did make the god-king bleed. Overwhelmed, the rest of the Greeks made their final stand on a small hill behind the old wall that the Phocians had built a century earlier. Xerxes ordered the small hill with the remaining Greeks on it surrounded. It was a vicious ending to one of the most heroic stands in history. Writings tell of Greeks on the hill who had lost their weapons start tearing at Persians with their hands and teeth until finally the Persians rained down arrows on them until the last Greek had died. 
While the Spartan bones have never been found, in 1939, archaeologists found the hill that they believe was the final stand. Known as Kolonos Hill, archaeologists discovered a huge number of arrowheads in the ground similar to those that were used by the Persians during the Battle of Marathon. Now, usually, the Persians would treat enemies who had fought bravely against them with great honor. But after the Greeks fell at Thermopylae, Xerxes was furious at the Spartans who had caused so many of his soldiers to die. When his men recovered the body of Leonidas, Xerxes ordered his head to be cut off and his body crucified for all to see. Now, usually, the Persians would treat enemies who had fought bravely against them with great honor. But after the Greeks fell at Thermopylae, Xerxes was furious at the Spartans who had caused so many of his soldiers to die. When his men recovered the body of Leonidas, Xerxes ordered his head be cut off and his body crucified for all to see. While this might have helped Xerxes feel better, the brave stand of the 300 Spartans and their Thespian brothers helped muster courage for all of Greece. But still, Xerxes continued his conquest of Greece, and by the time he reached Athens, he actually found it deserted. The Athenians had fled to Salamis Island about 10 miles west of Athens, forcing Xerxes across the water. As Xerxes fought a naval battle with the Athenians in the Strait of Athens and Salamis Island, he also encountered a full Spartan army as it defended Corinth miles away. With a two-headed approach, the Greeks managed to drive back the Persian forces, first losing the naval battle at Salamis in September of 480 BC, Xerxes began to retreat. The Persian army was then defeated at the Battle of Plata by an army of Greeks led by the Spartans in August of 479 BC, forcing the Persians out of Greece once and for all. Because the Persians were routed and forced out of Greece before they could have complete victory, Ephialtes never saw the fortune he was promised for betraying his own people. Now an enemy of two peoples, he went into hiding. About nine years later, in 470 BC, Ephialtes was killed by a man named Athenades for something completely unrelated. Still, the Spartans, who had been looking for Ephialtes, gave a reward to Athenades for ridding the world of the traitor Ephialtes. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. If you want to learn more about King Leonidas, the Spartans, and the Battle of Thermopylae, I'd really recommend reading the many works of the great Greek historian Herodotus. While I'll be the first to admit they can be a tough read at times, they were written as it happened as the Persians invaded Greece around 480 BC and are the closest thing to reading the newspaper of the day as we'll get. You can find the nine books in The History of Herodotus available for free on MIT's website at classics.mit.edu slash Herodotus, that's H-E-R-O-D-O-T-U-S slash history.html. I'll make sure to put a link to that in the show notes as well. While I did my best at the pronunciations in this episode, I would like to apologize if I mispronounced any of them. 
Thanks for listening to the Based on a True Story podcast. Based on a True Story is on the web at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. Drop by, say hi, and let me know what you think.